millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What is virtue? How do you acquire it? How do you live a flourishing, examined life? These are the questions your high school students could be asking at Princeton University this summer at the Witherspoon Institute's seminar on the moral life and the classical tradition. Accomplished university faculty engage students on discussions of the big questions, drawing on thinkers like C.S. Lewis and Peter Kraft, and using a Christian framework to stress the importance of the family and human dignity. Students seeking admission to the seminar should be earnest in their desire to further their education as well as their moral formation. Former students of this program have gone on to graduate from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and many other colleges and have formed strong friendships over the course of the week-long course. The Seminar for Men runs from June 17th to June 23rd, and the Seminar for Women runs June 24th to June 30th. See the Witherspoon Institute's website for application details at winst.org. That's winst.org. And welcome to Forma. My name is Andrew Kern, and I am pleased to be continuing an interview with Susan Wise Bauer about her new book called Rethinking School How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. Susan, hello, how are you? I am great. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk with you too. And I'm glad you used the word again because obviously <laughs> I'm glad that you want to talk to me again. <laughs> but in this case, um, we got to the end of our discussion last time, and two things happened. One was we basically, you wrote a five-part book, and we talked a decent amount about parts one and two, and then did a crash course on three and four, yes. and really didn't talk about five at all. That's one thing that happened. Another thing that happened is that, I even made a note of this, at, at 47 minutes into our conversation, I asked you, why you wrote the book, and you said there were three streams that came together, the first of which was the number of parents who needed options between school and home. And I said, well, I don't want to stop you from talking about these three streams. And then I asked you a question that stopped you from talking about the three streams. So what I would like to do in this conversation is, Susan, can you, can you remind us well, you told us the first one, which was, as I mentioned, the parents who wanted options between home and school. Right. Do you want to complete that thought or say anything more about that and then tell us what the other two streams were? Or am I being so unkind and unfair you don't remember the other two streams? Well, no, I, I do remember them. Um, I, I think we I think we, we talked about the first one. I mean, it just the <laughs> families are infinitely varied. Um, you know, when I when I talk about classical education, I like to use the image of a house and say, you know, every house has four walls and a roof. And here are the aspects of classical education that are sort of like the walls and the roof. But inside that framework, family lives, I have this incredible uh, number of different manifestations and parents need a lot of options. They need mm -hmm. options between kids in school full-time, kids at home full-time. <laughs> that's, that's two ends of a spectrum that should be um, 
much more varied and much more subtle and have a lot more gradations. So um, trying to offer parents that was the sort of the first, the first stream there. Um, the second is actually a little more personal for me, which mm. is that I've got four kids and two of them sort of fall into, in, in the book I refer to it as, you encounter school and you think, this is my native home. I am happy here. It is a good land and I shall stay and prosper. And then <laughs> there are, and that was me. Um, but then there, that, and that was two of my kids. And then the other two were, you know, sort of these constant, um, had this constant deer in the headlights look when, when presented with academic work. And the more I worked with them, the more I realized, you know, Part of the problem with educational options is they tend to be written by people who are sort of natural academics, um, for people who are natural academics. And there's a very large number of people out there who do not process information in the way that natural academics do. And yet our entire school system is geared towards people who learn and communicate in one particular way. In the book, I talk about propositional knowledge as opposed to experiential knowledge. So mm -hmm. propositional knowledge is abstract. It's knowing what, um, it is dealing with ideas. It is language based and experiential knowledge is knowing how it's knowing what to do. Now, of course we all need both. Um, if you were going to exercise, um, experiential knowledge, you know, you're going to build something or dance or draw or sing. Of course, you need some propositional knowledge to, to gird that up. You need to know something about what you're doing in order to actually do it. But all of us lean one direction or the other. We find propositional knowledge or experiential knowledge easier to grasp, more of our native land. And I am a, a huge fan of classical education in particular, of propositional knowledge. But the more I worked with my own kids, the more I realized that you can't simply steer all kids into heavily book and word driven knowledge without taking into account how different human beings understand, take in, um, reproduce, experience knowledge. So Part of what I'm trying to do in this book is widen out the way in which we think about teaching to include those kids for whom sort of traditional academics are that, that that's not how they that's not how they roll. It's not how they experience the world. It's not how they learn. I really appreciate that. Two two reasons come to mind. One is my own experience. Probably I'm more comfortable with propositional knowledge than the average guy or, or, you know, I'm probably fine with that more than experiential maybe. Yeah. But yet, um, <laughs> I enjoyed school sometimes, but for all the wrong reasons. And I never did well in school until I got to really college. Mm. Um, I was, I was, um, I didn't fit the system. And, and, and I, I think my thought here is that, the propositional versus the experiential is one way that kids get excluded. Mm -hmm. Another way is, is things like people who are really comfortable um, expressing their thoughts out loud and people who aren't. Yes. Um, 
I I definitely think as I guess an extrovert has been redefined recently as one who thinks outside his head. I I think by talking and writing, no doubt about it. Sometimes I need to be left alone, alone, and there are plenty of hermits in the world, by you know dispositionally hermits, and they're at a terrible disadvantage in a lot of schools. Hmm. Um, I I also have a really hard time sitting still for more than my son called me a tiger the other day because I pace back and forth all the time. Yep. Yeah. And boy, that was hard in school when I was a kid. I mean, I, I, I'm not a great athlete, but I was always playing as a child physically, mm-hmm. uh, baseball, football, basketball, soccer, swimming, whatever. And thank God I could. Now I think about kids who, who, who get almost no breaks during the course of the day right. and physically that it doesn't work for them. So, so for a lot of different reasons, school didn't particularly work well for me. Um, but I just, I had an experience this week that I want to mention here because I think you've you've framed it for me. A young man came walking into our church on Sunday, just off the street, wrapped in a blanket, and I saw him in the back, and I I said hi to him, and my son David said hi to him, and we got something of his story. And basically, he's about eighteen years old, and uh, he's more or less homeless right now. He's two credits short of his high school diploma. He has moved from the Bronx to Charlotte three or four years ago. Uh, rough family situation. Um, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm listening to him talk and describing his background. And, and, I, and I'm actually thinking to myself, through all of this, has he ever learned how to read? Yeah. And, and I said to him, so do you like reading? And he said, oh, yeah, love it. I'm actually a bookworm. And then to my... <laughs> shock and delight. He said, I, well, I said, what do you like reading? He said, Oh, by far, I love the Greek myths. Hmm. And we start talking about Homer and he starts. And if you know anything about me, Homer is my, my, well, how did you put it? Your jam is research. My, my jam is Homer. And so he starts talking about Agamemnon and Achilles and the conflict between them. This guy is a high school dropout right now who if he was just the stereotype, mm-hmm. he would not be reading Homer. <laughs> right. Right. But he was a really smart kid who didn't who who the system didn't have a place for him. Yeah. And he's too lousy credit short of a high school diploma. Right. And if I can, I just want to ask the people listening to to pray for this young man. Um maybe I'll have more news on him in a later podcast. But but this is a man that that you're writing about. The system didn't fit him. Um, and so, so, so that thread, that stream is one that I completely, in ma- many, many senses, relate to that. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my husband, um, who just recently went back to school to do a doctorate, um, was the same way. He fit so badly into the system, not because of anything having to do with um, innate intelligence, but because he was, on the one hand, a boy and didn't mm-hmm. like to sit still. And, and I think our system does disadvantage boys. But then also, um, he was continually preoccupied with things going on in his own head. And, you know, as, a, as an elementary school child um, in the 60s, he was diagnosed with petty mall epilepsy, which he doesn't wow. have. He doesn't have no brain scan has ever picked up anything abnormal. There's absolutely no proof that he had petty mal epilepsy. He just used to stare out the window with his mouth hanging open. Um, 
And he, so, and he got diverted into a special classroom and, you know, at the age of 57, he finally had the confidence to think I'm not stupid. I can go back and get Mm. an advanced degree, but that's how Mm. long it took for him to recover from the message that this system gave him. The message was you don't learn in this particular way. And so you are not smart. And, and that's just so appalling to me. It, it is, and it's also accidental. This is one of the things that, that is so important in, in education is that we can say whatever we want about the, the formal curriculum, but you talk about the child's vision in, in part four, and maybe this isn't exactly what you're getting at, but one of the things I would say is that um, what we formally intend to teach a child is important, but what we have no formal... Well, let me rephrase this. The world that we put the child in and the unexplored assumptions that we make about a child learning, mm-hmm. those are, I'm going to go this far and say, I think those are more important than the books we have them read and the way we test them and, the, and well, the way we test them expresses some of those assumptions. But those things are more important than the, the, the formal curriculum, as important as the formal curriculum is. I, and I think that when you say, I, I would expand on that a little more, when you say more important, I don't know that that's quite right. I think they're, they're um, louder. That's what, that's what the child hears. Maybe that's what I mean. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's the message that the child takes away. Not what it is we're actually saying, but what the system is telling them. Um, and so, you know, I, so I do spend a fair amount of the book saying, all right, let's rethink all of our assumptions here. Why is your, you know, why is your seven-year-old in second grade? That's an assumption. Why is learning happening with lecturing and writing? That's an assumption that that's the way that learning should happen. Um, Why does learning take place at certain times during the day? Why do we, and this is, you know, something I'm really interested in, why on earth are we splitting this up into seven different subjects? Why do we have subjects? Why do we study seven subjects for a little while every day. All of these things that we think of as natural are not, and they need to be um, re-examined whenever a child is struggling because that child is hearing a message. The message is, you're not doing this right. Um, You're not smart enough. And before we tackle the kid, we really need to look at the assumptions. Are there good reasons why we're doing it this way? If there are good reasons, what are they? Is there possibly another way that we could carry out that same intention in a way that would be more conducive to this particular child's learning? Um, so, so yeah, so that's the second. And now I'm gonna, I have to tell you the third before I forget it because okay. we okay. go off again and then we'd have to do yet another session where I <laughs> back okay. to the third stream. It's a deal. I'm going to make you forget the third one now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just, I think that the, the third stream has to do with me being, um, I'm turning 50 this year. And, you know, just for anyone who's in the Virginia area, it's going to be like Bilbo Baggins's um, 11th birthday party. It's going to be a huge celebration. Everyone must come and celebrate me being 50. But what I have seen in myself and friends of my same age over the last four, five, six years is the extent to which we were not encouraged to think about who we were, who we wanted to be, what we could do well. That was never a focus in traditional education. Now, because I was home educated myself, I would say I got much, 
I, I did much better <laughs> out of my education than many of my friends who were in traditional classrooms um, settings. But you know, even even as a home educated student, um, my mother was home educating us in the seventies and the eighties, in which she was you know desperately trying not to get arrested for truancy, and so huh, we didn't yeah. question you know the the system that we were in. We just tried to fulfill it as well as we could. Um, it didn't really fit us to be adults. It didn't prepare us to be functioning, whole, healthy, compassionate um, human beings doing what we were made to do. Mm. And our school system is focused on uh, completing these requirements, which again have evolved and in many cases are arbitrary. And never asks us to find out who we are and what we are supposed to be doing. So, you know, I talk to a lot of kids, but I also talk to a lot of people in their 40s and 50s who are suddenly realizing that their education didn't actually fit them to be human. That's incredible. So you're you're talking now, I think, about what you were describing in the chapter 14, The Child's Vision, which mm-hmm. which launches us into the question, I mean, the part, part four, rethinking the system. So if you're all right with that, I want to look at that. Sure. You, you, you put here, the second, your, your vision for your child is only one part of the equation. The second part is, who does the child want to be? Right. And you just said who we are, what, what 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 we want to be, what we do well. Talk to me about that. You talk about in, in the chapter self awareness and then challenges. So describe describe the problem, if you would, and what you're moving toward a solution with. Well, the problem is, and here again, this is one of the things that becomes clear as you grow older. The problem is that our system gives us our school system gives us a series of external objectives make a certain amount on a test, get a certain grade, um, you know, complete four years of high school, get into a certain college. And almost all of those um, objectives are imposed on us. We're not asked to really examine ourselves and figure out what it is that we are made to do, what God is calling us to do, what, what we want to do. We are at a very early age, given a set of external goals to meet. And then we're praised when we meet them. Mm. That gets you Mm. through about, if you're lucky, it gets you through your early forties. And then you think, wait a minute, what? (laughs) This is, I've, I've hit all the external goals. I mean, I think for a lot, even of academics, um, you, you, you pursue first the grades, um, then the diploma and then the college degree and then the graduate degree And then, you know, maybe you teach in a university and then you get tenure and then you have your midlife crisis because that's the last external goal. And the system has never encouraged you to look at intrinsic goals. Um, So, you you know, you've hit all the benchmarks and then you think, okay, what do I do now? I can't tell you how many colleagues I've had say to me, you know, once they've gotten tenure, I say, what are you going to do now? And they say, retire as soon as possible, you know? Um, I can't imagine that. Well, it's, it's pretty common. Um, so I want us to go back to the beginning of the system and go back to our first and second and third graders and say, this is great. It's great to tell kids there are certain things that they need to learn. They need to learn how to read. <laughs> they mm-hmm. need to interact with ideas. They need to understand mathematics. 
But let's back off from saying, okay, your goal is to get good grades, to do well in school. Um, that's a very temporary and fleeting motivation. It's not going to get them through um, into adulthood in any healthy way. Let's spend some time thinking about what does, what, what does the child want to do? And so I do have this whole section in the book where I say, look, here are some ways to help your kid begin to articulate what is it that they want to do? I mean, one of the things that I say is, here's how to help the child describe their perfect day. Um, it's a mm-hmm. thought experiment. Mm-hmm. If, if this perfect day involves, and while the kid is doing this, you can't criticize or, or give feedback. You just need to listen. If the perfect day involves being around a lot of people and doing things with them and doing things for them, then that's a pointer to what is meaningful for that kid. If the kid's perfect day involves getting under the covers and staying in bed all day, there's a message there too. That's a child that is completely overwhelmed and, um, and exhausted and needs to be rescued. So helping kids to articulate, begin to articulate their vision for what they want their lives to look like um, has this powerful message both for the kid and for us as parents. Hmm. I like the way you do it too, because the hard part about this might be what questions do you answer if the child is stuck? And so you've listed some questions like, when do you wake up? Um, I I think of those as sort of topics of invention from the, from classical rhetoric, but that's, that's a really, it's on page 160 for those who are looking for it in their book. But, but that, that thought experiment of figuring out that perfect day really is a great tool for diagnosis and also for direction. And that's, I think I mentioned this in the last um, podcast we did, but one of the things I appreciate so much about this book is how many tools there you, you've given parents to diagnose themselves, their children, the system, and so on, and the context. Just before you go into the challenges, sorry, just before you go into how to help the child become self-aware, you make two statements that really resonated with me. You, you wrote... Um, Well, here's a preamble to the first one. You said, most of us don't even remember what it was like to think about our lives outside of the K to 12 educational system. Okay. That's a context statement. Then you said this, which I highlighted. It's the reason that so many people plug away at jobs they hate. Mm -hmm. So what you're suggesting here is that the way we're teaching children when they're in third, second, fourth, sixth, eighth grade, the way we're teaching them is causing them I'm here let me let me just put it this way it's causing them to be less happy than they ought to be when they're adults hmm. well i don't know that it's causing them to be less happy but it is certainly training them to live with discomfort that they shouldn't be living with it's training them to live inside of a system that is not good for them and so I would see it hard to being happy in that. I mean, granted, you can become a saint, but yeah. no, no, but but yes, and 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 certainly, perhaps some of us are called to do that, but we're not called to fall into it because it's never occurred to us that there could be another option. Right. Thank you. Will always be a choice. Yeah, uh, and go on. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, then, then down the page, same page, you say. It's not reality because we're always talking about, you know, the real world, training for the real world. School is training us for the real world. And you say it's not reality. It's just what school prepares us for. Yeah. 
develop yeah. that thought, if you would, because that's a that's a kind of poke in the eye. Well, uh, you know, we we depending in a polite de- sense, in a polite sense, depending on your upbringing, um, you you absorb to some extent this idea that you know life is difficult, life is hard, and we just have to plug on and do the best that we possibly can. That's absolutely true. Life is difficult. Life is hard. We're in a fallen world. We have to um, be both brave and disciplined to live worthy lives. But not all of the pain and suffering that we experience is really necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, if we are in a traditional school setting, taught from a very early age that it is okay to be bored for large periods of every day, that it is okay to sit and submit to the direction of others, even when that direction isn't particularly productive or interesting, that it is um, an inevitable part of life to negotiate our way through um, unhealthy peer relationships and power struggles. We're not taught to question that and to say, wait, is this really the way that life should be? Because from our formative years, that is the world that we're placed in. Anything that you grow up in seems normal to you. I mean, I think a lot of us, as we get into our 40s and our 50s, a big part of that is questioning your family system and saying, okay, of all the things that I thought were normal, which ones are actually normal? And which ones mm-hmm. um, do I need to question? That's what I want people to do for their kids, to not simply, without thought, put kids in a situation where they have to sit and be bored for a large part of every day. Because as they move into adulthood, they're going to accept that as normal and natural. And it's not going to occur to them to question it as they move into jobs, as they move into the workforce. And you think it should be, they, they should be, they should be questioning the assumptions. They should be questioning the assumptions. Things that cause us discomfort need to be questioned. We may find that they are, um, we may find that there's something that we have to live with. We may find that discomfort and suffering are things that we are called to endure for a time. But I think a lot of this pain and suffering is simply um, a matter of our not questioning why it is that we're doing what we're doing. So Questioning the school system is is part of becoming self-aware. You know, in in the book, I Mm. slightly tongue in cheek, but I, I, you know, I use the example of Plato's cave. Um, If, if you're, if you only see the shadows of reality, then that's reality to you. It doesn't occur to you that there's anything beyond the shadows. It's a challenge, constant challenge that we all have to meet to look beyond the shadows and to say, is this shadow reality or is there something else that I need to be looking at? Hmm. And it sounds, are you saying analogically that, that in some way pain is an indicator of a shadow when we need to get away from the shadow? Is, am I sort of over applying that? No, I mean, it can be. I think that I, I'm, I'm, I don't know that everyone who listens to your podcast is, is a, you know, an Orthodox Christian in the sense that I am. Um, I know that pain can be simply a matter of living in a world that is not as it was designed to be. But in many cases, pain is an indicator. Um, you know, when you're, when you're walking 
and you rub a blister, um, you stop and you think, what is wrong with this shoe? You know, you don't just keep walking and think, well, everybody has blisters. I'm just going to keep walking and live with the blister. I just need to be stoic and disciplined and pray about the blister and um, understand what the blister is teaching me about my life. No, you stop and you take the shoe off Mm. and get a different pair of shoes. So I think that many of the, the, the painful experiences that we have in our lives are, they're like blisters. They're saying to us, okay, stop, stop and stop and think, stop and reflect. Um, a lot of times pain is your soul saying to you, hello, stop here. Something is wrong. Pay attention to it. So I guess one of my beefs then with the school system is that it teaches us to ignore certain kinds of suffering, teaches us to ignore boredom, teaches us to ignore um, a a situation in which we feel that we're wasting our time um, because it teaches us that this is what you do as a human. You waste large amounts of time every day. Boy, that's that's <laughs> strong. Yeah. Yes. So then one of the you talked about boredom and you've talked about self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Part 3 in the book is called taking control. And we did right. we we scanned this in our last conversation. But it seems to me, okay, here's what's in my mind right now. Okay. In part 4, which we just have been talking about rethinking the system, the last chapter there is called Solving for X. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important chapter that I want to come back to. But I think the Rethinking the System section, which ends with Solving for X, creates a need for it. And, but then so does taking control. There's certain, if, if we're going to be self-aware, we're going to attain that self-awareness because we take control of things we ought to have control of. Right. Um, and if we're going to avoid pain and boredom, it's going to be because things that cause us pain and boredom are going to be resisted, rejected, adapted, you know, whatever. There's going to be there's going to be a taking of control. Right. So in this section on taking control, you start with basic principles, and then you deal basically with I'm going to say four different um, things that need to be taken control of. One is assessment. You you call it control the tests. So mm-hmm. we need to talk about assessment. Two is homework. Right. Um, challenge the homework monster. Right. You even have a section called when homework doesn't work. Right. The, th- the third is accelerating. That's interesting. You talk. You call the section accelerate, but don't necessarily skip. Right. And you, a lot of I was actually um, when I was in kindergarten, I was the oldest kid in my chat class because I was born three days after the cutoff. Right. And, and, and of course, at that age, that's a 20% difference. Yeah. I was, I was intolerably bored. I would mm-hmm. every single day. I remember this, and I don't have a good memory for, for my childhood. I don't have a good memory of things that happened. Um, I don't mean it was bad. I just don't remember right. stuff. But I remember this. Every night, at least pretty well every night, I came home, and at nighttime, I would cry to my dad, begging him to get me out. Mm-hmm. On Thursday, I finally persuaded him. And on Friday, I walked into my kindergarten class. They walked me down the hall to the first grade class. And mm-hmm. the boy who was older than every child in his class suddenly was younger than every child in his class. 
Yes. And and for my whole life, I was the youngest child in my class. And you talked about, you know, feelings you still have. I'm 54 and I still have a deep feeling that I'm far less mature than I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And because I always was, it, it's just a habit that, that becomes part of your identity. So you talk about accelerating, but don't necessarily skip. That's, that's something I, I want to hear a little bit about. And then you talk about the method. Uh, you talk about intelligences and so on and how you go about teaching. Right. Okay. Where do you want to start? Yeah. Good question. Um, I would say, let's start with the basic principles. Um, you say how not to, because, because this is about as the parent intervening on behalf of your child. Now we did talk about this last time, but basically you say how not to be that parent. Um, give me a summary of that. What are, what are you, you talked to respect and, and, and cooperation before, but basically how do we make sure that we're not the parent that the teacher dreads? Right. Well, I think that the first thing that you have to do is go into, and, and I'm assuming here that you've got a kid who is in some sort of traditional K through 12 setting, you know, whether it's private or public, or maybe even a co but they're in a traditional K through 12 setting. Can, I, can I just to, challenge the word traditional and suggest conventional? Conventional. Conventional is good. We talked a little bit about this last time. Um, yes, it's, ash, it's actually relatively modern, but uh, we tend to accept it as as normal, even though it's, it's not really. So yeah. conventional will work. Um, the first thing you have to remember is that you and your kid are not the only people stuck in this framework. The teacher is, um, the teacher is, the school is everything around, um, everything around the people who are caring for and teaching your child. It's all part of the same system. So you have to go into it, realizing that everyone is sort of struggling everyone is, everyone feels the, the unnaturalness of this system. And the, the teacher is not the problem, right? The teacher is also stuck in the system. And so you have to go into any negotiations with the attitude of, I want to do the very best I can to help you do your job. Um, you know, people don't go into teaching because they're going to make big bucks and retire early. People go into teaching because they are called to teaching. Wait, in most what? Cases. Yes, I know all of your listeners who are now going to drop out of their education programs. Um, So so you go in assuming that the teacher, first of all, wants to do the best they can. The teacher has your kids best interest in mind. Um, As you continue to deal with teachers, this belief may be shown to be incorrect in some specifics, but you have to at least start assuming that everyone here is doing the best they can and direct your energies on the system and on bending the system to fit your kid rather than seeing the teacher or the administration as somehow the enemy, the problem in this setup. Right. Yeah. I I mean, it's a subtle but extremely important difference in attitude. I I think it's gigantic. It's very, I was a teacher for quite a while in a school setup and, and it wasn't, it was a, a private school, fairly flexible, small, which is helpful. Um, but I get it. It's, it's, um, there's a, I, I think that the two people who fear each other the most in education are very often the parent and the teacher. Yeah. Yep. They're, yep. they're each being judged by the other. Yes. That's very well put. I used to say to the parents, I promise not to believe anything your children tell me about you. If you promise not to believe anything they say about me. 
Yeah. Well, and you know, and I, and, and I've been a teacher too. Not, I have not taught secondary school, um, not in a classroom setting, but I've taught, I taught college freshmen for, you know, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I would have a parent call me breathing fire, um, Mm -hmm. to, to chew me out about something that had happened. And I would say, okay, well look, here's, and I kept very good records as a teacher. Here's actually, uh, what happened. Here's the kid's attendance. Here's the kid's grade. Here's what the kid said when I said, come in and do your makeup exam. And 99 out of 100 times, there's a silence on the other end of the line. And the parent says, oh, <laughs> and you can hear enlightenment, you know, um, right. coming. So, so we want to go in giving the benefit of the doubt to the people that we're working with. Right. Um, and then also we want to go in uh, with solutions. And here again, this is a big reason why I wrote this book. You can't just go in and say, my kid is not doing well, fix it. Right. You have to go in having done your research and say, my child's having a hard time. I think that this might be a problem. Here are some solutions that I've researched. And here are the ways in which I can help you to institute this solution in a way that will not cause you a lot of extra work, but will do wonderful things for my kid. Yes. That's how you become part of the solution. Perhaps that should be put in a poster and, and, and distributed to all the parents of school teach of children in schools. They should Perhaps memorize so. that. <laughs> yeah. Although the teachers would eventually catch on. Somebody would have to come up with a variety. Yes. I think that's just excellent. The, the, the foundation has to be relational. We're human beings. The people teaching and the children are are human beings and we just can't lose sight of that. And and they're in a tough spot. I really appreciate, I really appreciate you emphasizing that. Yeah. Well, part of the, what, what it, uh, part of what establishes things the way they are and, and almost sustains the way things are in my view is the way we assess student performance that yeah. it, it creates certain necessities. And so you have a chapter on controlling the tests in which you describe um, the kinds of tests, what they're looking for and so on. Why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit? We don't have as much time as you know, people need to read the book, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how you perceive the benefits and also the the shortcomings of tests? Right. Well, I think um parents have to keep in mind that um school-wide tests, so you know, the, the standardized tests that everybody takes on the same days and um those those batteries of tests are not for the benefit of the kids. They're for the benefit of the school. There's nothing wrong with this. The school is working with the child. If the test results benefit the school, then the kid theoretically is better off. Um, If the school does well, the child will do better in many cases. The problem is is that these tests um, prioritize the kind of knowledge we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. They prioritize procedural knowledge, um, sorry, propositional knowledge, They prioritize the kinds of abstract information that some kids absorb better than others. And they also um, uh, disproportionately reward kids who have good um, fine motor coordination and can bubble efficiently and kids who have good hand-eye coordination and can sit still and concentrate for a long time. Hmm. If that's not your kid, then your kid may be so stressed by this test, by the prospect of the test, um, by the stress of taking the test, that the test becomes a um, 
not just a negative, but a, a burden, a trial, one of those mm-hmm. sufferings, you know, that we're like, oh, well, everybody has to do this. No, in every state, there is a way to exempt your child from, from school-wide testing. Every state has an opt-out option. It's often a little tricky to find, and sometimes it's not well publicized. But part of putting your child ahead of the system is to think first about whether it's going to be good for your kid to take this test or not before you think about, well, is the test going to be good for the school? I think that as parents, that that's one of our responsibilities. If your kid is made to feel stupid by these tests, has stomach aches, um, you know, is sick every morning that there's a standardized test, you got to pay attention to that. And it's your responsibility to protect them from it. It's a method of evaluation that is good for the school if kids do well, but does not take into account the kids themselves. So it's Mm -hmm. a very, very flawed way of evaluation. And one would assume that the way you get ready for tests is by day-to-day routines and homework and so on. So why don't we transition to the to the homework monster? If testing is something you can refuse to take, can you also refuse to do all your homework? Yes, you actually can. And and actually I would push back a little bit. Homework um doesn't do anything to prepare kids for standardized tests. It's in fact, it hasn't been shown that homework, particularly for elementary and on into middle grade, it hasn't been shown that homework does anything useful whatsoever. Um it does not tend to improve kids' understanding. It has no measurable benefits. Um, For elementary students, it has been shown to be an actual detriment to learning. And it takes a child who has already done a seven or eight hour day and gives them additional work to do at the end of the day at a time when they should be resting, reading, playing, doing chores, running around with the dog, any number of the other things that make up an actual life. Um, In most cases, a teacher does not have a well-articulated reason for assigning particular homework. You can always question it. Um, One of the things I spend a lot of time doing in the book is showing how grades in elementary and middle school don't really matter. So if the kid gets graded down for not doing homework, It has absolutely zero effect on their future. Um, In high school, it's a little bit more complex. And in the book, I go over some different options for reducing the homework load in high school as well. But for elementary and middle grade students, if they are in school all day and then they have homework to do at night, they are sometimes putting it in a seven or eight or nine hour day. Mm. Go back to what we were Mm. saying earlier about what that trains you to accept as normal. It trains you to accept a ridiculously long work week in which work becomes everything and you don't have time to do anything else Mm. as normal. I think we should push back at this, particularly when our kids are in their formative years. Yeah, they need time to watch TV, right? Absolutely, they do. I mean, if you don't watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, then, (laughs) you know. (laughs) How can you grow up? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, of course, 
TV is one thing that has its valid place, but we're really talking about the fact that I like the way you put it before. They need to live a life. They need to play with the dog. They need to do the things. They need to have hobbies. They need to do things that they're interested in. And that's a long, long work day for, for the person whose horizon, whose time horizon is approximately two hours, probably, if we're talking about a second or third grader. Yeah, exactly. You remember the five assumptions behind homework that, that you listed from, from Kathy Vetterot? I think that's how you say her name. Do you remember what those five yeah, are? I don't, I don't have them in front of me, um, but you know, the assumptions assumptions behind homework are that they'll it'll improve academic performance. There's an assumption that the kid needs to be kept busy. Needs, you know, there's this sort of custodial function that schools take on, where they're like, "Well, we need to make sure that those kids aren't out wasting time, so let's give them something mm. useful to do." Mm. Um, the assumptions that lie behind homework are almost universally easy to overturn. Mm. If you've got it in front of you, you can, uh, you can review some of the others. I didn't know if you had one in particular in mind. No, not really. I thought they were all quite um, at least provocative, if not very insightful. A lot of work has been done on this, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a matter of, of um, trying to, I'm, I'm just trying to keep it in front of people's eyes. Well, at the very bottom of the page that I'm looking at where the five assumptions are made, you have four um, source references. One is Stanford News. Yeah. Um, the other is Boston Beacon Press uh, from 2000. One is 2014, 2006, 2009. So there's a 14-year range here of of some serious thinking going on about the point of homework and it's, it's false assumptions. And I think what really drives it home for me is how these kids have already been in school for so many hours. And I would argue for so many days. And we forget that during the, during the 19th and early 20th century, kids didn't go to school all that much. And there's not a a lot compared to now. And there's not a lot of evidence that, that going to school more culturally speaking is good for kids and 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 even and particularly child speaking there's my awkward grammar of the day that it's that it's good for for students that they're learning anymore by going to school so much to be extra bored yeah you said you had about two or three more minutes and so we should really we should again we should perhaps wrap up but having said that i promised solving for x Susan, what is X that we need to solve for? Um, X is the place where the best learning occurs. It is the combination of teaching method, environment, um, subject matter that moves the child towards true education. And although there are some principles, you know, that we can offer um, that will help guide you towards X, that ideal learning situation, it's going to be different for every kid. So, you know, this is really what it comes down to for me and why I wrote this book is that to solve for X, to find the situation that's going to suit your child and give your child the best learning environment possible, you got to customize it. You've got to be able to visualize it, articulate it, and then look carefully at what parts of it you can control and implement rather than, um, rather than simply accepting the system as it is and trying to push and pull at it to make it fit our kids a little bit better. 
I want us to back all the way up, look at the kid first and think, all right, let's talk about X. Let's talk about the place in which you, this child standing in front of me that I have been given to guard, protect, nurture, and lead into adulthood. How can I find the situation in which you are going to prosper? That's, that's what solving for X means. I would say, Susan, that you're crazy, except for two things. <laughs> One is you've done so much work to help the parent do that in this mm. book. And again, I am very grateful to you for having written it for that reason. The second reason I don't think you're crazy is because, and the reason I, I'm being tempted to think you're crazy is because you're asking people to do something really hard. Yeah. Yes, yes, but, and, and I think we actually touched on this last time we talked, if your kid is struggling, and, and that's who this book is for, it's for parents whose kids are not prospering, um, then you're, if your kid is struggling, you're already putting so much energy and emotional energy and physical energy and probably money and time and just parental fretting into trying to fix what's wrong. Yes. That to just back out completely and start over isn't necessarily that much more work. You know, when my mother decided to homeschool back in 1972 or one or whenever it was, she did it in part because she said she felt like she was spending all of her time undoing what was being done at school. And she thought, well, it can't be that much more work just huh. to do it myself. God bless your mother. I know. And, and so that leads me to my second reason I'm not I don't think you're crazy. Parents love their children. Yes. And, and, and parents who love their children so much and now have this resource, if they felt like there was nothing available, I think for that reason, this book has the power to be an incredibly valuable resource for, for I, I think this book has the power to improve the lives of tens of thousands and maybe more children. And for that reason, as one who loves the creator of children, and therefore when I meet them, I try to love them. Thank you. The, this is a book I hope will be will be sold widely. I hope will be read deeply, and I hope will be applied systematically, steadily, and for some people who aren't systematic and steady, randomly. <laughs> Even random solutions are better than no solutions. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Susan, it's so much fun talking to you. I, I, we have to do this more often. And I agree. I'll try to be at your 50th party, your, your Bilbo Baggins party. All right. Bring fireworks. When is it? I haven't decided. I'm a, a TBA, so. TBA. Okay. Yes. Stand by. Okay. I will. Thank you. Have a Merry Christmas. Actually, David, retract that. This will be long after Christmas. But Susan, have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 